0: so that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a delight to, uh, to be in conversation with you today.
0: So where in the world are you calling in
1: from? Uh, I am calling in from Taos, New Mexico in the United States.
0: New Mexico. Now, why is New Mexico in the news for some reason? They've been in the news a lot recently, haven't they?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, the, the state will periodically show up in the news. Uh, a number of, of people within the, the Biden administration are leaders from New Mexico, um, certainly the Permian Basin being uh, here yes. in New Mexico and a source of oil and gas. Um, and, you know, New Mexico has been a, uh, certainly a place of, uh, of many of the uh, businesses in the extraction industry.
0: I'm happy you didn't mention Breaking Bad as being a reason New Mexico,
1: because <laughs> that would be another
0: reason. So you have a very interesting background, uh, a very storied career in the tech sector and so on. As a start, let's talk about your background, a bit, you know, where did this all start and how did you end up having these choices in life?
1: Sure. Sure. Um- So I I can certainly speak uh, from my academic background. I uh, have undergraduate degrees in business and psychology and a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in uh, organization dynamics. And uh, that background uh, has been particularly formative in in the work that I do and the life that I've led in that I I like to play at the intersection of strategy and execution of strategy. Uh, And that that always comes down to people. And the uh, people in the organization, and uh, I was a partner in a global management consulting firm for seventeen years, yeah. where we were working primarily on the people side. And this is, you know, I'm I'm talking the the early nineteen nineties, uh, and I I had uh, eight years uh, prior to that working uh, in the people people arena as well, and it, you know it was it was it predated the uh, the McKinsey report on the war for talent in the mid nineteen nineties.
0: So out of university, you went straight into management consulting?
1: No, I, I spent eight years working for a financial services firm here in the U.S.
0: Okay. And is that where your interest in organizational theory, organizational design evolved? Was it similar to the work, to your studies, or it was different?
1: Yeah, it was, it was really that, you know, having had uh, undergraduate studies in business and psychology, I was always interested in, in people in organizations and that, you know, that dual degree of, uh, psychology and business just it played to my my personal interest in human behavior, organizational behavior, and impact on, uh, on society. And then my graduate studies in organization dynamics, I had uh, faculty from the Wharton Business School and the School of Arts and Sciences, which really helped me tie together in a, in a deeper way um, psychology and business.
0: And the work you're doing now through your firm is also based on organizational theory, organizational design and so on?
1: Yeah, I I work with my clients to, you know, first review or help them develop their business strategy. And then from that, look at uh, how do they execute on that strategy? So, you know, as I mentioned before, it it requires people. And so it's helping them develop a, a talent management strategy to align with their and fulfill their business strategy and then looking at the organization culture, looking at the organization leadership, and then all of the systems and processes that exist within an organization and making sure that they're, they're aligned and comprised of the right, uh, the right talent, the right kind of organizational capabilities and competencies to fulfill the uh, organization strategy.
0: And what are you seeing as some of the big trends issues happening now in that space?
1: Yeah, I mean there are there are a multitude of of issues. Uh, you know, the, the clients I work with, one of the biggest problems they've had is uh, attracting and retain, retaining talent, uh, especially because of COVID. Over the last couple of years, we've we've seen the mass uh, yes. resignation, and so clients have had to really look at what is the talent that they need in the organization, yeah. and how do they retain and attract the talent that they need. And it's you know it's it's been a challenge challenge across all industries of attracting and retaining talent, especially um, during this period of the Great Resignation.
0: And what are some of the tools or tactics or best practices you've seen successful companies adopt and use?
1: You know, it, it's interesting. There, there, there's been a lot of work done around employee engagement over the last 20 plus years. My, my firm was actually one of the pioneers in employee engagement back in the early, mid-1990s. And, and, and in some respects, nothing's changed. It's looking at what, you know, what's most important to, to, uh, to people working in the organization. Uh, what's the purpose of the organization, which is particularly resonating with, with uh, Gen Z? Yeah. And uh, who are the leaders and what are the qualities of the leaders? What, uh, what are the opportunities for growth and development? Uh, what are the, what's the nature of the relationship with their peers, with their customers? with their superiors, with their subordinates. And those, those factors have always been uh, important to, to individuals working for an employer. And then you know, things like uh, I, I call compensation hygiene factor. If you're within 20% high or low of, of, uh, of a target number, compensation uh, doesn't make a difference mm-hmm. in terms of whether somebody comes to work for you as an employer or chooses to leave. Okay. So
0: those sound like things companies have always really been doing. So what has changed in the way they're now managing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the things that have changed are organizations have learned uh, by, you know, the hard lesson of having to have a virtual workforce. Yeah. And so they're now, you know, trying to figure out people spent the last two years working remotely. They're coming back into a physical location. And so employers are trying to figure out what work can actually be done virtually, what work needs to be done in a company facility, uh, how do people collaborate how do they cooperate, how do they innovate, um, and what's a hybrid look like? And obviously it depends on the role, it depends on the organization, what work needs to get done, but companies are now needing to learn to um, have some hybrid of virtual and and physical and um, it, it certainly hasn't been figured out yet.
0: Okay, that sounds very interesting. And do you feel that there are certain sectors that have gotten a better handle at handling this or it's just a complete across the board, everyone's trying Yeah, it,
1: it, it truly is across the board. I mean, I, I work across multiple industries and I, I can't point to a single organization I work with that has, has figured out a solution. You know, they, they've figured out a temporary solution for them. I've got clients that literally have given up all of their physical locations and yeah. now are having to reconsider that. I've got clients that um, you know have put all kinds of, of safety measures in place in terms of daily daily testing and mask requirements and all sorts of things uh, because they've needed their their workforce to be on site all the time. I've got clients that are rotating where half the workforce are in the in the physical um, office space three days a week and the other half are there two days a week and then the next week it's three and two. And uh, I've yet to find an organization that has completely figured it out.
0: Yeah. And do you think that there's been some difficulties in terms of having a workforce that's mostly virtual, but at the same time, companies have not moved away from having this very rigid organizational design structure in the way they assign employees and so on?
1: Yeah, I, I would say two, two responses. So one has been a surprising aha. At how many how many clients I work with? How many organizations have realized they actually can work virtually and work work very effectively? But you know, one of the lessons they've had to learn is um, their performance management systems and yeah. what are they actually measuring? And so many companies, you know, based on a hundred year history from the manufacturing sector. Uh, we're still focused on throughput, meaning what were the were people showing up? Were they showing up on time? What were they doing? And the managers were mo- monitoring their throughput as opposed to their output. And yes. a, a big learning experience for for many organizations has been uh, something they've known, but just didn't have performance management systems, manager systems in place to really focus on the output. You know, companies have gotten much better about the input, meaning who they're hiring, but they, they were still focused on the throughput as opposed to the output. And shifting the focus to, to output has been one of the requirements of working virtually. And they're still discovering what, what does that really mean? And what, what's really important? What are the activities? What are the behaviors of their workforce that are truly focused on adding value to the, to the bottom line and to the operations of the, of the business.
0: If you look at most of the media reports and so on, there's big talk about how the workforce has adjusted well, productivity has gone up, but has productivity really gone up in your opinion, or is it just at this time after the pandemic, things were bound to surge?
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my sense is productivity has definitely gone up when I look at, at you know, the actual results. Uh, of, of clients of you know, one of the organizations I work with, they, they in response to, to the initial effects of COVID, they reduced the company organization size by about 40%. And yet they delivered uh, more financial results than they had the prior year with, with 40% fewer workforce. So productivity is up, but it's taken a toll. I mean, people, every single leader I work with is exhausted. Their leadership teams are exhausted. And um, it's, it's taken a tremendous toll. And I, I think we're going to see that uh, some of the efficiency, some of the productivity numbers are gonna wane if, uh, if they can't find ways to address it, including adding more staff, getting, uh, getting better at uh, business processes and figuring out how to get work done.
0: And just to unpack that for the audience, you're not the only one that tells me this is taking a toll. I've seen it with executives I've spoken to. They look tired. Is it because of COVID or it's because of moving to virtual working is the issue? Which one is driving it? I mean, it's probably a combination, but is it the virtual working where there's no, there's no barrier to when work ends that's driving this?
1: Yeah, I, I would say it's a couple of things. So one is just the uncertainty. Yeah. Um, has, has just driven a tremendous amount of stress. I mean, literally every single leader I work with is under uh, undue stress, experiencing stress in a way they never have before because they, their crystal ball is no longer working. They just don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing, um, you know, some, uh, some more variants of, of the uh, coronavirus. And so you know, here in the U.S., uh, employers are, are wondering, you know, is there going to be another wave in the fall? What what are they going to have to do? So the, the uncertainty, certain, and the stress associated with that has been has been a piece of it. Um, you know, the the, the term work life balance was coined about twenty years ago, and it was a function of of you know technological advances where people could be always on, yeah. and certainly with COVID and working virtually. Um, the the leaders I work with um, are are exhausted because where they may have before COVID been able to, to turn off work at some point, they have not been able to now because they've got all of their people are working virtually or yes. have been for the last couple of years. And so they're having to be always on. you know, my 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 comment around the work-life balance has been that. There's a deal that gets struck, particularly with the CEO, but the leadership team. That when you take on those roles, that is your life. There's no such thing as work in yeah. life. It's just that is your life, and you know most most CEOs get it, and they're you know they're being compensated for it either financially or in other other ways. But mm-hmm. um, for other leaders, they they weren't necessarily uh, aware or bought into it, but mm-hmm. have have found that they're now in that position as well, that what the organization wants and needs from them is that they that their work is their life. And that's, yeah. that's taken a tremendous toll. And then with, with other individuals working virtually throughout the organization, they're experiencing what the CEO has been experiencing, but they're not being recognized for it. They're not being compensated for it. And so there's just this sense of always having to be on. 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
0: That's a good point because most people are not aware of the compact that comes with the job until COVID really forced it on them when they had to work at home and be available 24 hours and so on. And a come back, if I may, to the example of the client you gave me earlier, whereby the workforce had been shedded by 40%, I think it was, or something like that. Correct. And productivity went up. Now, using them as a frame for this next question is, How are they going to manage this going forward? Because you mentioned that they are clearly going to be fatigued if you lose 40% of your workforce and your productivity goes up and your results improve. Clearly, these guys are working much harder. But at the same time, if they've proven they can work with 40% less employees, their shareholders are probably never going to allow them to pad back employees. It sounds as if they've put themselves in some kind of a trap that's very hard to get out of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, what you know, what, what the leadership uh, team has done is to take a look at their business strategy, to look at the at their target market, to look at their client base, to look at all of their product offerings, and they're pursuing a new strategy. They're shifting the organization culture, and they are um, they they will be adding uh, additional staff. But the profile of the staff and the direction of the business is going to go will be will be um, in some ways the same as what they've been doing. But in other ways, they will be going uh, expanding their their business directions and taking advantage of opportunities that they've discovered because of the nimbleness and the way they responded to COVID.
0: Yes, but it sounds as if it's not an easy way out for them. They're going to be stressed and fatigued for quite a long time
1: yeah i mean I, I've I'm working directly with the CEO and the leadership team i've you know had, had, have been the messenger of information they already knew that you know they're already exhausted and and they're going to be for the next eighteen months and is there
0: a drive from these companies you know just moving away from talking about just them for confidentiality reasons is this causing companies to do more automation, more digitizing of processes and so on how are they managing? that 18 months, is it hiring more people or is it automating?
1: Um, it, it's for, in that particular case, but all of the clients that I'm, I'm, I work with, they're all, you know, facing the same challenge. They're all, you know, there's, there's a, this never ending um, push for growth. And so they're exploring ways to, uh, to achieve the growth targets that are, are being demanded by industry analysts and, and the various stakeholders. So they're looking at automation, they're, they're looking at outsourcing, they're looking at joint ventures, they're looking at, at where technology can be, um, can be implemented and looking at all of their business processes. It's something that businesses have always done, but there's now increased pressure and increased urgency to uh, to do that even better.
0: And what would you think would be some of the long-term effects of this period that we're going through?
1: Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be a conversation around what is the right bit, set of business metrics. Yeah. And that, the, you know, the, the business metric driven by I'll call it Wall Street, but it's the investment community is growth. and It's growth at all costs. And, you know, the good news is that as a species in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, we've learned we live on a finite planet. And, you know, it's been at the at the destruction of the planet. But we we finally have the data and the information that helps us know that we're living on a finite planet. And when you're living on a finite planet with finite resources, then growth for growth's sake, growth as being the only metric, uh, is not sustainable.
0: Yes. But do you think that there'll be much change? I mean, if you look at what the response was to COVID, it was a total lockdown. It means we have the willpower and we have the resources to do it. So if we're not doing anything about climate change and not enough of it, is there ever gonna be a point whereby we're gonna be at the cliff and we just need to do
1: it? Um, you know, if, if you look at the data, we, you know, President Kennedy here in the U.S. in, in the 19th, early 1960s was the first U.S. president to be told about climate change. Mm-hmm. And every single U.S. president since Kennedy has been told about climate change. Business leaders have been, you know, it's been on their radar and uh, has you know, by and large haven't done enough or haven't done anything to address how their organization from a risk management standpoint is going to deal with it. Um, and, and the reality is um, we're out of time. I and mean, we were out of time 20 years ago. And this decade is the most critical decade in human history. And we're you know, now into, uh, into 2022 and all of the UN reports, all of the scientific data, all of the information is saying, we've got about seven years to, to do something fundamentally different. And if I use um, you know, COP26 as an example, last fall in, in Glasgow, it was a flop, it was a failure. And um, business leaders and every business leader I, I work with and have for, for a, a better part of a decade I have been advising trying to help them understand the seriousness of this, and um, you know for for some industries, it's an incredibly complicated issue. if you're in the petroleum or the energy yeah. industry, if you're in the airline industry um, we're we're talking about massive challenges uh other industries it's it's less less of a challenge, but it's still a challenge.
0: yeah, and do you feel that? COVID has somehow made us lose focus of the climate issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I hold COVID as a warning sign. Yeah. You know, we, we've, we've had plenty of warning indicators and COVID has, has delivered a, you know, in a, in a very positive way, it's delivered a message to the world. This is just the beginning. But how um, do you
0: see it being linked to climate change?
1: Um, It's it's linked to climate change in that when we when we um, destroy ecosystems, which we've been doing now for for over a a century, when we destroy an ecosystem, we we lose biodiversity, and when we lose biodiversity, then um, we have incidents of bacterial infections, Mm -hmm. viral infections um, that become pandemics like like COVID. And you know, there's enough indicators out there that COVID-19 is just the beginning. Um, you know, And I, I look at climate change, we're now at a point where there is a climate-driven activity every 17 days on the planet that's resulting in property damages of a billion dollars or more. And that used to be 30 days, it used to be 60 days, it used to be 90 days, but it's now down to 17 days and it's not gonna be too long before we're down to 15 days and then 10 days. And so you think about the implications of that on disruption to supply chain, you think about it in terms of disruption of people's lives around distribution of of products and goods and services to the market, um, insurance costs for, for businesses.
0: Yes. It's interesting, you talked about biodiversity, I was talking to a BBC reporter recently, who's published a book about the reduction in genetic biodiversity in food. And Mm -hmm. what he was saying is it's a pendulum, because initially, we were doing it for commercial reasons, to have a type of wheat or grain that was appealing and tasty. But then due to climate change reasons, we started promoting certain crops that were more stronger and can handle the changes in climate but he's saying the knock-on effect basically what you are talking about is that we've created a situation where we've eliminated biodiversity and we're going to see bigger problems in the future whereby one strain of wheat that makes up two-thirds of the supply could get hit and people don't see the link with climate change because the connection is not direct for them and you one of the few people that actually was talking to me about how COVID is a knock-on effect of climate change as opposed to it being an, an health epidemic or something like that. So it's a very interesting insight. But do you think the world sees it that way? Because you're the, one of the few people that's made that connection.
1: Yeah, the, the world doesn't. I mean, obviously there are, there are experts around the, the world who do know it, but the general public certainly doesn't. Most business leaders don't. But you know, if, if you're in the, in the uh, agricultural sector, um, where there used to be crops that could be grown in certain parts of the world, the frost lines are moving mm-hmm. the, uh, the climate, the temperature is changing. And so the, the, the sources or where, where plants can be grown, yes. no longer can be grown there. And they're, they're having to uh, you know, move the location. Certainly, um, you know, the, the genetic modification of plants to adapt to, to, to climate change is happening. The, the desire to, impose efficiency into our food systems uh, you know, over the last hundred years um, for the you know the, the benefit of driving down cost has had a horrible impact yeah. on ecosystems, on, on human diets on health you, you look at uh, beginning in the 1990s when some of the, uh, some of the crops were being genetically modified. Um, we started having an epidemic of obesity, of, of diabetes and high blood pressure, et cetera. And you can track um, over the last 30 years, changes, specific changes in agricultural practices and the resulting impact on human health here in the US. And it's not just limited to the US, it's, it's true in other countries as well, but the US was, was leading the world in, in some of those changes.
0: it seems like a tough nut to crack because you're sticking on the topic of food and diabetes and high blood pressure and so on if i'm not mistaken most of the food industry let's just look at seeds are controlled by just a few companies you just have a handful of companies controlling most of the food we eat and i'm not referring to the process side of things once it actually comes out at the end i mean the actual crop that's taken out of the ground. So it's almost as if we've allowed these mergers to go through without thinking through the long-term implications of having everything in the hands of a few people who are obviously going to be making trade-offs for commercial reasons. So it's very hard to see how that changes because it's a difficult thing. You've got to go to the basics and stop the climate from being damaged. Clearly you have to do that. But at the same time, you have to fix the problems that already exist. And you've got to almost have a two-track approach to this as opposed to saying, we're gonna fix climate change and everything's gonna get better. It's not going to get better if you just do that.
1: Yeah, no, you know, I, can, I can go industry by industry. So I, if, if I look at the petroleum industry for, an ex, for example, you know, they, they've known about the impact uh, on climate change since the mid 1970s. They've known, the industry has known uh, about the need to move to renewable energies and the, the systems that are in place have made it very challenging and difficult for, for those changes to, to happen. You know, a, a petroleum company, particularly in the exploration and production and the refining industry or uh, sections of the industry, they're making capital investments over a 20 year time horizon. And so, yes. you know, there is there some unique challenges to that industry. If I look at the, the agricultural industry, you know, there, there are billions of dollars that has been spent on farming practices and the machinery and all of the suppliers that make that, that possible. And yet um, we know from a from a climate change perspective, from an, a, an, an environmental perspective, from a dietary perspective, the need we we have is to to move to regional and local farming. Yeah. and. Um, you know, you look at a country like India, where Dr. Vandana Shiva and, and other leaders in India have have forced the government uh, at the state level and the federal level to move to organic farming, to move to seed banking, to um, to, to drive the the what has become the traditional commercial farming uh, out of the country or prohibit it, and so the you know the the food companies in particular and I, And I mean that all the way through, from the the farming, the the suppliers of of uh, tractors and equipment, through to the grocery retail outlets, that whole supply chain will have to change. and i'm you know i'm I'm working here in my community on a, a food sovereignty initiative um, to look at seed banking, to look at having as much as seventy five percent of the food that's consumed. In in this region of of New Mexico, be produced in New Mexico, and so the grocery stores, the the supply chains, the the the, the firms that do um, you know delivery of food, etc. They will all be impacted by what will have to be a trend towards local food sovereignty.
0: That sounds like a very good idea. It actually works. You've quoted some examples of that. I've also seen that in California. In Vegas, I've seen some initiatives like this, and Canada as well. Given the importance of climate change, when I speak to executives, and I speak to executives every day, and clients as well, what I tend to see is everyone knows it's important, they talk about it, it's in their language. But if you dig down into the initiatives they have on the go, it does seem like it's business as usual. And... For many companies, they feel if it's, it's someone else's job to address the fundamental pillars around climate change. So, for example, you speak to banks, you speak to airline executives and so on. They know it's important. But if you look at budgets, priorities, R&D, climate change is not really the thing driving their business decisions. Do you also see that? Or is it something that patchy and some are doing it, others are not doing it?
1: Yeah, and no, I'll... I'll uh... I'll share a couple of different perspectives. So, um, business leaders in general publicly talk about climate change, but it's primarily driven by fear that the government in Washington DC or at the state level is going to impose strict restrictions on them. And mm-hmm. so, it's it's uh, it's not authentic. Um, it's it's PR. It's spin. Privately, the leaders I talk to, they're very concerned about it, but they they will say, "I don't know how to address it. The system doesn't allow me to address it. Whether it's the the board of directors or the the industry analysts, the institutional investors aren't allowing it to happen. So there's a systemic problem yeah. that's getting in the way. And the leaders have said to me privately. <clears throat> I need political cover to do the right thing. I know what the right thing is, but I need political cover. And you know, I'll use COP26 again as an example. You know, it was the 26th annual COP and yet there still hasn't been a conversation at COP on an industry by industry shift in addressing climate change. It's still this conversation about globally, we need to do something about it. But as I mentioned before, for some industries, it's much easier to, to put in changes than other industries. The textile industry has done a good job of looking at the pollutants, looking at the chemicals, looking at where they're sourcing materials. They still have a long way to go. They're still one of the biggest contributors to climate change. The food industry is probably the biggest. But um, if we can take a, an industry by industry, sector by sector approach, I think we can see more advances and more improvement. But there hasn't been a, a mandate to make that happen. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I can go back to, you know, the mid-1990s, uh, Ray Anderson, the CEO of, of Interface Carpet, making a decision and having an aha to look at the thousands of chemicals that were going into the carpet manufacturing process and setting a goal of removing as many chemicals as possible from the manufacturing of carpet. And he achieved it and you know set a bar for the industry. And we haven't seen other leaders in under other industries take that same approach. I mean, the CEO of Patagonia has done that for their industry. Uh, and it has affected the industry, but we need more leaders who are willing to to take those risks, to put themselves out there and say, there's something we as a company and we as an industry need to do. But for those CEOs, it it requires that they get their board of directors on on, in support of them to ensure that they don't lose their job by by taking what the analysts are perceiving as risk. And, And the reality is, There have been so many technological advances that have happened that, you know, whether we're talking about um, building materials, construction, et cetera, supply chain, uh, sourcing, there are so many alternatives that exist now, but companies haven't done a good job of of availing themselves of that information.
0: Yes, when you give the example of the Glasgow meeting, if you look at that, it was a The focus was on a global solution, but the reality is that there are just a handful of countries that contribute to the maximum amount of pollution coming up. You you can take the bottom 120 countries and they can Mm -hmm. do everything. It's not gonna change the world, right? So that's the first thing. We know it's just if four countries put a concerted initiative in place, things can happen. And we know that which those four countries are. The second thing is that we still have to deal with what's already been put into the earth and atmosphere. It doesn't go away, it has to be withdrawn. So there's a lot of talk about um, neutrality and reduction, but there's very little talk about what we're gonna do about what's already out there, which is still going to be causing trouble for years and years and years. And you feel in your work with leaders that it's almost as if business talks about how do we become climate conscious from today but I've never heard a business leader talk about what are we gonna do about what's already out there.
1: Yeah, no, and thank you, thank you for the prompt. We've got in excess of 300 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that needs to be drawn out of the atmosphere because that's, that's not just what we're continuing to put into the atmosphere, but it's what, what's already there. And that, yes. that 300 gigatons needs to be drawn out of the atmosphere. Historically, the planet Earth had about 6 trillion trees. We need about 4 trillion, and we have 3 trillion now. So we need to find a way to get a trillion trees planted. But that includes stopping cutting down the forest that we already have. Yes. The Earth at one time had 50% more topsoil than we have today. About 150 years ago, we had we had 50% more topsoil than we do today. I'm sorry, uh, we're we're at 50% of what we had 150 years ago. And topsoil is one of the best sequestering uh, practices or opportunities for sequestering that CO2 out of the atmosphere, as with trees. We've destroyed our grasslands, we've destroyed our oceans. A combination of an additional trillion trees, restoring the topsoil, and taking the topsoil we do have and making it healthy, restoring the ocean health and, and restoring the grasslands will sequester that, or that 300 gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. But that requires different food systems. It requires different forestry management practices. And a lot it, of so, land,
0: I'm guessing, for the trillion trees.
1: It requires um, where do those trillion trees go? and the human uh, natural interface has to address that. There are about 850 ecosystems on the planet and nature needs half minimum of each of those ecosystems. And so there has to be a conversation around that human nature interface in each of those 850 ecosystems.
0: Yes, when you put out numbers like that, because the number is so big, let's look at the one for trillion trees. It's such a big number. And that's a trillion trees that need to be managed well because they only suck out the bad stuff if they're alive. If they die, they don't serve a purpose. You've got to have a trillion trees that are managed, kept alive, and we've got to have a system in place whereby people see the benefit of doing that so they are willing to fund that through higher taxes and so on. But it's almost as if, People don't see the incentive or there's no incentive. They don't see the benefit. So they're not willing to pay for it. So coming back to this point, right? If you look at the effects of climate change, of course, many developed nations are being hit. But the places being hit the hardest seem to be developing economies. There are islands in the Pacific who may not be there in a few years. They may be underwater, or constantly flooded. Do you feel that the momentum will change when people in the developed world start seeing the impacts more closely
1: everything you said is absolutely true Um, and and we're already seeing here in the in the us for example um, and in many countries around the world uh, the developed countries are seeing the impact of climate change but it's disguised it's concealed yes there are roughly 80 million climate refugees on the on the planet today that number is gonna to grow to 200 million by the end of this decade.
0: So did you say 18 million?
1: 80 million.
0: 18 million, that's a big number.
1: Yeah, and it's growing to 200 million by the end of this decade. And it will grow to about a billion by, the end of, uh, by, the, by 2050. And so here in the US, here in, in, uh, in North America, in Europe, there are refugees coming into those countries. And people are being affected by those refugees, whether it's around uh, infrastructure, social services, the uh, judicial system, et cetera, there is a cost. The war in Syria began because of climate change. And so you look at the billions of dollars that were spent on the the violence and the the war in Syria that was driven primarily by climate change. And we're going to see more and more of those conflicts, more and more actions being taken by countries in response to immigrants, climate-driven immigration to to, uh, other other parts of the world. And that's one of the many hidden costs of climate change that uh, people aren't aware of, they're not paying attention to.
0: Yes, it's a good example that you gave of Syria and what's broadly happening in the Middle East and North Africa now, because if you read press reporting on the subject, they often talk about discontent. The people are discontented, they're upset, but what are they upset about? At the moment, a big part of it is rising fuel and food costs. That's why there's discontent. There's uprisings, there's turmoil. You're right about the issue on um, climate refugees. What we're seeing now is probably just the early manageable waves of what will eventually come if it's mismanaged. But coming back to this point, and it's interesting how our conversation started on organizational structures and design, and we moved into climate change. Do you feel there's an opportunity here for companies? Are they missing an opportunity?
1: You know, any time there's a challenge, it doesn't matter if it's a, a pandemic from COVID, or war, or you know, demographic shifts, or anything else, there's always a challenge and there's always an opportunity. And for any business leader, you know, the the, the challenge is looking around the corner, anticipating what's coming next and how is it gonna impact your business and how are you going to respond to it? And there are tremendous opportunities that um, the challenges that the world is facing, uh, many opportunities for businesses to respond to but it, it can't be business as usual. And it, uh, it requires looking at strategically, what are the implications of the challenge? Who are their customers? How are they gonna reach them? And what kind of workforce do they have to, uh, or need to respond to those challenges? Now, if you're going back,
0: we've had precedent in dealing with something like this. Nobody talks about the hole in the ozone anymore because we were able to respond to that. What's different between that response and what's happening now?
1: Yeah, what, what's happening now and what's different is the complexity of the challenge. You know, with the hole in the ozone, we knew that Freon and some of the chemicals that were being released into the atmosphere were causing the hole. So you could easily identify the problem, you could easily identify the, the solution. The problems that that we're faced with now as a business leader as a governmental leader, as a society around the world, the problems we're facing are incredibly complex. There isn't a simple solution. And so we're seeing it play out in in politics around the world where there's a complex problem. People can't get their head around it. They don't understand it. And so we're, we're seeing many, many countries where an autocratic leader is being elected because the the citizen and citizenry are saying, this is a complex problem. We need somebody to to just fix it, to get it done. And likewise in in businesses, we're we're seeing um, the complexity of the challenges where the smart businesses are creating a culture, they're creating a leadership team where the team collectively are solving for these problems but we're also seeing organizations where they're uh, putting a a very uh, historically traditional leader in place that's very autocratic, that's being you know driving through or attempting to drive through decision making, and you know time and time again it can be it can be expedient, but it doesn't always work.
0: Yes, it's interesting you made that link between how leadership is being forced to respond to climate change. And you're right, what you're saying is very true. The more complex the issue, the more apprehensive and anxious people become come because they don't know who's gonna solve this, if it's possible. They want someone who can take charge and someone who seems to have a solution in mind. It's almost as if the element of leadership is also changing because of climate change. We're looking for leaders who may or may not be able to fix the problem, but seem to have that style of getting things done. Not many people have made that connection, but it's very true. The more complex the problem is, you look for someone who you have faith in. And sometimes you give away too much power, hoping the person can fix the problem. Correct. And it's very hard to take that power back.
1: Uh, it, it is. And the, you know, the, the unfortunate part about it is that the complexity of these problems is so severe. And yes. the, you know, as a business, for example... For a business leader to anticipate the kinds of risk that they're facing, the market changes, the demographic shifts, et cetera, um, it's incredibly complex. And there are, there are extremely few leaders who can solely take on that level of complexity and drive through, uh, drive through solution sets. Every, every CEO I work with, is is you know being faced with a series of challenges they haven't been faced with before and trying to figure it out.
0: Yes, I think you've convinced me to buy an electric car next. Actually, I'm not even joking about it. I think you've just convinced me to buy an electric car because the way you've got to think about it is you have to do what you can to fix the problem.
1: I mean, the, the reality is each of us as human beings are destroying the planet every single day of our life. Yeah, you know, you you can go online to. Uh, a carbon footprint calculator and do a calculation of, of all of the, the, you know, the house you live in, the, the tram- mode of transportation, your food systems, et cetera, and we're all destroying the planet every single day of our life. And the question is, how do you as an individual, how do you as an organization, how do you as a leader, whether it's in business or in the, in the community, how do you reverse that? And not only how do you reverse it, but how do you address the decades of destruction that have already happened?
0: Yes, I and mean, this is the thing that makes it scary. Even if we stop, we haven't fixed anything yet. We've just sure. reduced the amount of pain that's going to come in the future.
1: Yeah, and we, we know that the, the world population is approaching 8 billion and will level out at around 11 billion in the next, uh, next 25 years or so. And so you look at the, the the damaging impact of of eight billion people on the planet, and then you add another uh, three billion or so, and the potential degradation and impact from that is is horrendous. And yet, to your point earlier, most of that impact is coming from from a handful of countries. And uh, you know, I, I can look at the U.S. The U.S. has about 5% of the world population, and yet it contributes between 25 and 30% of the um, energy use and, and impact on climate change through our food systems, through our use of energy, et cetera. And so you know, the burden has to be on countries like the U.S. to address this problem. And yet, whether it's our, our political leaders or our company leaders, There's this belief we can just keep kicking the can down the road and and a future set of leaders will figure it out or there will be some kind of technological advancement, some kind of technological solution that will will solve the problem.
0: And on that somber note, we're going to end the podcast, Tom, because (laughs) it's very fascinating. You are one of the few people I've seen who's been able to make a connection between climate change and all these issues. And I do mean that as a compliment because I speak to business leaders all the time, but they don't see the connection. They just don't well, see it, the connection.
1: It's, it's part of the, the reason why I do the work that I do is to help them see it, you know, for the benefit of, the, of their survivability and their role, for the survivability of their, of their organization and the positive impact that their business, businesses can have on the world.
0: Yes. And I, to some degree, I feel that the urgency that COVID gave us to relook at things is being lost as the economy recovers and we get out of COVID. It's almost being pushed into the rearview mirror and nobody's really looking at it. But you're right, you know, climate change is by far the biggest issue we face. I like how you said that every day we're alive, we're doing something to damage and hurt the planet. And we've got to figure out what we can do to reverse that in the ways we can control, in what little we can do. And, and I was talking about electric cars, a joke, but not really a joke. And for those wondering, Tesla, no, Tesla did not sponsor this podcast. We're not talking about techs, electric cars because of Tesla. So I want to thank you for this conversation, Tom. I find it very fascinating. I actually enjoyed the conversation. It gave me a new perspective of thinking about climate change and biodiversity and so on. So I want to thank you for that. I think our audience is going to love it.
1: Yeah, I'll just, I'll just close by you know, certainly saying thank you. I, I enjoyed the conversation as well. Um, and for me, I, I look at the world uh, through a lens of, of a Venn diagram. You've got one circle of the Venn diagram that's nature and what nature needs. You've got a second Venn di- a circle in the Venn diagram of what society needs, and a third circle in the Venn diagram of, of our economic systems. And the three of them, you know, the intersection of that is where we need to be operating from. And unfortunately, the the economic systems that are in place are existing at the detriment of nature, and and existing at the at the impact of you know, societies around the planet, and the social injustice, and and um, and the cost on human lives. And we've got to find a balance between those three of nature, society, and uh, and the economic systems. And it's not it's not working yes. today.
0: But I don't think people keep it front and center. I think that's the first point is to keep it front and center. And then the other one is that there's been a lot of hysteria around climate change, a lot of screaming, bold headlines. And I think we should maybe tone that down and start becoming more practical about saying, what are we going to do about this versus someone just screaming that there's the world is coming to an end, but no one's talking about what we're doing about it. And as you pointed out as well, There's not a lot of places we need to look. We know which countries and which industries are most responsible. We just need to focus on those things. Thank you, Tom. That was amazing. I think the audience is going to love this podcast. Thank you so much, and I wish you have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing.